Microverse was the first company crazy enough to issue global credit in the form of an income share agreement. Microverse's model was really unique in the sense that we didn't have any teachers. And so what we sort of, the, the thesis behind Microverse was content is commoditizing. What's up everybody. My name is Ish and I'm the founder of Virtually. And this is Reshaping Education, where we discuss the future of higher education, including online trade schools, boot camps, ISAs, and so much more. This week's conversation is with Wes Wagner, the founder and CEO of Align. We talk about his background, income share agreements, and the importance of aligning incentives between institutions and students. I hope you enjoy. And so after that, I ended up kind of doing some freelancing just, you know, at a distance for various startups. And I really loved it so much that I told my parents I wanted to drop out my sophomore year. And, you know, as any kind of Midwestern parent, parenting norms would, would have it, they just let me know that that was not an option. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, okay, I'll stay in school. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate the, the you know, and, and they, they supported me during that, which I'm really grateful for. But that, that led me to like really think critically about, you know, the future of learning and work and like why these systems did not feel like they were treating me well. And so, you know, my first instinct was actually to start a company in the space. I started like a kind of an upwork for interns to help other people, other, you know, college age kids from their boxers, I guess, and, you know, earn some money, gain real world experience and connect with a potential future employer. And, real quick, uh, Wes, I, yeah. I, you mentioned that you, you were considered dropping out. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? Like, where was, did you feel that college was coming short of yeah. expectations for you? So I just, you know, I was kind of a little bit bored in my, my classes. I, I'd always been a great student, but the material, like at any given time, I wanted to learn about something else. And so let's say my freshman, maybe it was like a history class or whatever. I wasn't thinking about history. I was thinking about digital marketing and like, okay, how can I help this company I'm, I'm working with, with their digital marketing? And I had no idea what to do, you know, no idea about anything digital marketing. And so I just saw that there was a mismatch between what I was really passionate and curious about and what I was told I needed to learn. And so from then, that just got me really, yeah, just kind of disheartened. And actually, I just looked at like my school as that. I'm like, oh, you know what? I'll go to, I'll tra- you know, transfer to University of Michigan. I hear they have a great entrepreneurial program. Oh, did you go to University I went to Michigan. <laughs> and so I considered transferring after my freshman year, but, you know, I ended up staying in and um, yeah, it was just, it was the mismatch between what I wanted to learn and what I was being told to learn. So it was more theoretical rather than practical. You had these real world pain points that you wanted to solve with education, but the education you were providing, getting provided was not meeting that need. Totally. And and like, so what I did after that was pretty much, you know, stay in my classes, get good grades, but I spent a lot of time working for different companies, you know, in, in, First, you know, for free working for a buddy's company in Spain, but then after that, like getting a couple gigs on Upwork to do some freelance uh, copywriting and things like that. And then afterwards, you know, doing some digital or virtual uh, or semi-virtual internships, you know, stints at venture capital firms and things like that. But that was really what got me excited was learning from, you know, actually being a part of a business that was, that I could like see what they were doing and, and making a change. Yeah. And Wes, I feel like I had a very similar frustrations with college. Like I, I also remember getting just so bored 
of these lectures where I was learning material that seemed just so irrelevant, so theoretical, right? And I remember after my first internship at Facebook, I was just completely disengaged because I had tasted what it felt like to have real impact. And, and when you're learning uh, on, you know, during an internship, you know, you can turn around and use that knowledge immediately, right? It's not learning for the sake of learning, it's learning with a purpose in mind. And it just felt like for me, college wasn't providing that at all. You're learning skills years before you need them. And because you're not practicing right. them, they fade very quickly. And so what is, what is the value you're actually getting at the end of the day? Totally. And I think, you know, a lot of the sort of more entrepreneurial minded people, or rather, I think everyone at, at birth is sort of a just in time learner. Like they, they want to learn things as they need them. They don't think, you know what, this could be useful in 10 years. So I really, really, really want to learn it now. And, you know, I, what I sort of launched into is exploring that just our modern education system or, or our current education system really tends to get rid of that drive for just-in-time learning uh, and replace it with a, you know, this is what you should learn. So just memorize this for now. Yeah. And it's really bad because like you, you, the human brain forgets very quickly, right? And so anything that I think that I learned in college that would have been relevant has already been forgotten because it wasn't put to practice. And so there seems something fundamentally broken about higher education that is just so distanced from when you're actually going to practice. And so either education, you got to immediately practice what you're learning or it, it needs to be postponed until you actually need it. Uh, that, that, that's something we can get into later in the conversation, but I interrupted your story. Why, why don't you continue and talking about, I guess, your journey at this point, you would have been a sophomore in, at Indiana. Yeah. So, you know, at that time I was working for um, a, you know, working remotely for a company based in Indianapolis that kind of had a, a freelancer marketplace for uh, digital marketers. And so it was, I, I started learning about that future of work and, you know, the rise of remote workers and things like that. But that's kind of what pivoted me into launch, you know, starting my own thing or my first business, which was Intask. And that was a, a marketplace to help students connect with employers over, you know, internship like projects to gain real world experience and get paid. And then from the employer perspective, they could um, connect with potential future employees, you know, get work done for cheap. And it was just a kind of a, a cheaper way to potentially recruit and date their yeah, potential employees. So I only did that for about seven months, never made any revenue, you know, learned a ton, had like 30 or 20, 30 students signed up on the one side, had a couple of businesses that are like, they're ready for students. But what I realized is that, is that all these students that I had in the marketplace, they really wanted to be told what projects at the company they needed to work on and what was the answer for the solution or, or like how to go about the solution. And so they weren't necessarily as driven and proactive, you know, they didn't have that just in time learning mentality. And so that's really the core thing that spun me to like study education more critically. And I decided like, okay, you know what, this is a big problem and I'm not going to be able to like solve it with, you know, just, just one company, but I would really like to understand the history of this and why education is the way it is from that point on. And so what I did was um, I shut that down. I, you know, I went to study abroad in Argentina and when I was studying abroad in Argentina, that kind of began my period where I started learning a lot about the history of education, the future of learning and work. And meanwhile, I was starting to develop a lot of these ideas that I later for my senior quote unquote thesis, 
I decided instead of taking a class that I didn't really want to take, I'm like, you know, I really want to learn about the, the history of education. I'm going to do a thesis all about it just so I, like, I have an excuse now to, to really think about it. Um, and so, meanwhile, I uh, joined a startup called Cheddar, which was a billing API company that helped software startups start and scale their billing systems. So, you know, there's payment processing, which is moving money, but then there's billing, which is knowing how much and when to actually charge people. And so I ended up joining that company kind of, uh, it was a little bit funny of a story. Like with my first startup, I had a mentor from Bloomington, Indiana, who was involved in the local startup ecosystem. And he said, you know, Wes, this is great. Love what you're doing. Uh, but eventually I really want you to work for me. And I was like, I'm not. I'm like, he was the founder of this billing software company. I was like, I'm not going to join your billing software company. That's the most boring thing in the world. And then fast forward like a year and a half, and I ended up joining his software company. But what I, why I joined it was just because I wanted to work with really smart people. And in the process, I like was fascinated by not necessarily billing, but what billing empowers, which is pricing. And so pricing kind of rules everything around us. People talk a lot about like product market fit. They don't think enough about like the price product market fit and, and making sure the price of your product really aligns with the value that you provide. And so I became really fascinated by that topic, but you know, I started working with that, that startup part-time and then full, kind of full-time after I graduated. But that was sort of my, my first opportunity after I graduated to live and work from anywhere. And I'd been doing that a little bit while I was in school, but I was still stuck in, in you know, quote unquote, stuck in, in Bloomington, Indiana. So I packed up my bags and, and moved down to Medellin, Colombia. <laughs> Isn't necessarily the most typical of graduate stories, but for me, it was just so obvious that, okay, I can work from anywhere. Why not, why not do it somewhere that's cheap and that I, I really kind of have a high quality of life. And so literally just after a Google search of best places to live in Latin America and best tech, tech ecosystems in Latin America, I moved to Medellin uh, without knowing anyone. And I've kind of been there the last uh, two years on and off and, and really just, you know, enjoyed uh, the, the weather down there, the quality of life, but also the startup ecosystem, because I think that the startup ecosystem is really fascinating. But, you know, not long after I got down there, I actually decided to leave that um, billing API company because I saw all the fascinating, problem, fascinating problems in Latin America. And I'm like, you know, I want to be a part of this, you know, startup entrepreneurial sort of movement in, in, in helping solve them. And so that led me to join Microverse as the first employee back in about September of 2018 or October of 2018. And, and I guess for uh, those who don't know what Microverse is, could you, could you talk about what the company is? Yeah. So, you know, maybe if you're listening to this podcast, you might be familiar with Lambda School, you know, this really uh, kind of hot startup in San Francisco that teaches people to become software developers and doesn't, you know, charge them anything in the, until they get a job. Well, I thought that was really cool. I'd been following along with Lambda School. And one day I tweeted something about how this is so cool that actually from my co-working space, space in Medellin, I met a Lambda School student who was doing Lambda School from Medellin. And I'm like, that's awesome. But like, it'd be even cooler if a Colombian could do this because they're the, you know, they're the ones that are earning on average, like a fraction of what's on in the US. For. And from that the founder of Microverse reached out to me and he was basically building that. So he was building um, an online school that helped people learn software development and not charge them anything until they got a job, no matter where you lived in the world. So I joined that company as the first employee. I was with them as we scaled from five students in our first cohort to about 
500 students total when I left in February of this year. And in the process, we went through you know, Y Combinator, we got, raised some rounds of funding, and we helped people from Uganda to Colombia to India go on to get jobs where they're earning double, triple, and at one point, like 10 times um, their previous income. And so I'm like, this is amazing. This, you know, I really enjoyed the mission, love being part of the team. But you know, in mid-February, I was like, you know, I think it's about time I can start to, to really build something of my own to empower this industry, just because I, I, you know, that's been always been my goal is to start my own business. Yeah, of course, that's awesome. And uh, real quick, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit more about your time at Microverse because I think it seems like one thing that's really just crazy impressive about Microverse is that they tackled this ISA market market at a global scale, which is absolutely insanity. Like, like no other company has attempted this. And I'm really curious, how did you guys pull it off? Yeah. So, and, and that's, yeah, I, I brushed over that, but really Microverse was the first company crazy enough to issue global credit in the form of an income share agreement. And we actually didn't have any, you know, innovative way of assessing credit worthiness, no, you know, the trustworthiness that someone's going to pay us back. But Microverse's model was really unique in the sense that we didn't have any teachers. We didn't have like hardly, when we, when we started, hardly any of our own content. And so what we sort of, the, the thesis behind Microverse was content is commoditizing. You can go to Udemy and get 50% off a, a course. And if you leave, maybe get 90% off some course. But what hasn't been, you know, really created at scale is the accountability, support, and community systems that someone really does need to learn and get an amazing job. And so because of that sort of peer-to-peer network, our cost to deliver that education was really low. So we just took the risk. And then we realized after doing it, like people paid us back. And so it's, that's kind of where I learned about there's a lot of these other ways to assess trustworthiness outside of the traditional credit system, which is what's your credit score and do you have physical collateral that I can take if you don't pay me back? And so what I, what I, you know, we started creating systems a little bit for is, okay. And actually, well, actually I wouldn't say we, we created many systems around it just yet, but we knew that if someone, you know, was in a good relationship with their fellow students and with the school, and if they loved what we were doing, they would pay us back. And if someone was not really happy with us and they were getting complaints from other students, they might not pay us back. They might leave. And we also realized that there's a lot of people that just borrowed money from friends and family to be a part of our uh, school. And we noticed that we noticed those people were um, kind of more committed and more determined. And now all their friends and family know that they're like, their goal is to, you know, learn through microverse. So yeah, it's just crazy. You know, people are pretty good. I, I would say that, you know, online or credit online is kind of where payments were 10 years ago. It was like, people were like, wait, you can send money online. How do you, but how do you not, you know, there's, it could be a stranger. And now we're at that point where it's like, wait, wait, you're trusting someone online? Like, you know, they might not pay you back. And so, yeah, anyway, we, we, we just kind of fell into discovering, oh, wow, people can pay you back or like people will pay you back and you just need, there, there's a lot of this data behind if they will. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. And, and tell, tell me more about, I guess, the, I guess the processes that you eventually did set up for this. Like how, how I guess... You've talked about social incentives a little bit, especially in our last conversation, but talk, talk more about that. Like, how did you quantitatively decide or determine whether somebody was going to pay you back or not? And then how did you basically assess that risk and then take action? Yeah. So, you know, 
first off, I would say that, you know, I want to reiterate again at Mike first, we did not in, have a way when we started of like assessing that creditworthiness risk. It was mostly our own sort of judgment of, okay, are they a good communicator? Are they taking this seriously? Are they attending their calls? And so that's what, like when I was, I I don't want to probably talk too much about uh, microverse, you know, I don't want to represent them here, but when, you know, Ariel said like fundamentally, like, you know, when they started out, it's like, that was actually, they didn't have an innovative way of doing that. It was the fact that the cost of education was just so low or, or much lower than, you know, having a teacher teach every class and having a physical location that they get to take that risk. So some of these realizations are something I discovered afterwards when I left my course, I'm like, wait, why the heck are people paying us back? And it led me to, I mean, I, I took like a month, month and a half, two months, just reading economics papers, like thinking about it, studying this. And it really led me to, to think about this concept of social capital, which we just accidentally created at Microverse. So it, it, here's what I mean by that. Um, when someone was at Microverse, they got to know other students. They got to know our career services team. And when they got a job, our career services team helped them connect with our employer, like employing partners. And then once they got a job, they would often come back to us six, nine months later because we would help them get their second job. But they would have to be paying us back in order to uh, access those resources. And so on accident, we kind of created a different type of collateral, which was this network and this social capital, these really, really valuable connections that can help someone, you know, get a better job and, and uh, have a better life. And so it's just something we created by accident, but I realized that now, you know, as I'm developing a line, you can systematize a lot of these processes. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm uh, up to now. Yeah, and I think that's a great leeway to kind of moving on to Align. I'd, I'd love to hear about, I guess, what your big learnings have been over this you know, past few months where you've been doing discovery and what's, what's the vision for the company? I mean, what do you hope to achieve? Yeah, so you know, what I love about Microverse and the reason I joined was you know, part of their mission was to, you know, part, or part of the reason I joined was that you know, talent is everywhere, opportunity was not, and they were clearly solving that. And, and, you know, bridging that gap between talent and opportunity all around the world. And I saw people that were incredibly smart, incredibly driven and motivated. that just never had the opportunity to get an education because in most of the world, you either have money for an education or you don't. There's no credit or finance mechanisms. There's, there's not a lot of credit and finance me- mechanisms in a lot of the world. And so, you know, I, when I left, I thought about ways to support this industry. I started, I thought about maybe, you know, starting one of my own schools and like a growth capacity. But what was really more interesting to me was creating a B2B tool to help every one of these companies that are, you know, bridging the gap between talent and opportunity to scale. And so I chatted with a lot of different companies in the, in the United States and abroad that were operating with income share agreements, were thinking about it. And, uh, you know, I realized all of them were creating all this internal tooling, and then maybe eventually connecting with a financial partner after they had several cohorts of data to show their repayment rates, their starting salary, all these things. And what I just realized is that, holy cow, like all these people have gone through a lot of effort to set up the, just the, the mechanism of launching an income share agreement. And I, to me, it's like, well, if you're incredibly driven, well, sorry, if, you, if you're maybe not in that 
you know, 1% of people that are incredibly driven. That's like, I'm going to tackle this industry and set up the processes and systems to assess trust, to underwrite risks, to create the payment workflows, to manage the contracts, all these things. If you're not at 1%, you just don't start a company in that space is, is my belief. Similar to how 10 years ago, you know, maybe you had this software to sell online or maybe you had a physical product to sell online, but it took weeks or maybe months of trying to convince a bank to give you a merchant account to accept a payment online. And the same way I see that problem now with anyone that has really, you know, amazing valuable skill that they want to share it with others and teach others. Now it's too hard for them to, to create a system to actually have a fairly or like a fair aligned pricing mechanism to charge their students because they could charge them up front, but that gets rid of the majority of their potential customers who need the education to get the money to pay for the education. Yeah. So that's where the and, finance component comes in. Yeah, totally. And Wes, this, this kind of reminds me of kind of the 1950s a little bit, because if you think about what it took to actually build a business in the mid, mid 1900s is that you would have to go to a bank and you'd basically have to ask for a loan. And if, if, you know, the company was successful, great, you'd pay off the loan. If it wasn't, you'd spend the rest of your life in crippling debt. And something interesting happened uh, as starting after 1980, the cost of education started going up. Actually, it went up, I think, 600% between 1980 and where we are today, double the rate of inflation. And it's gotten to a point where education is, is basically the same kind of problem, the same dilemma that you know, entrepreneurs had is that like, hey, this is a lot of capital. And if I'm successful, then, you know, great, I can pay it off. But if I'm not successful, I'm stuck in crippling debt. And it feels like ISAs feel a lot like venture capital in a lot of way, because it goes from being a loan to being an investment. It, it, do you, does that analogy check out? I, I'm not sure if I, I personally would, would associate income share agreements with venture capital, uh, unless there's like, so most income share agreements have like a payment cap right? Which is, you're never going to pay more than this amount. And they also have a, a, a kind of an expiration period, meaning if in five years, you don't have a job in this industry, or you never get a job in the industry, you're never earning more than this amount, you never pay a thing. And so, you know, that it's a, like, that's the, the really strange thing about income share agreements is that they're, they're payment obligations, but they're not debt. And they're not straight up equity either, because they have a cap. And so, you know, they're, they're similar to a, I mean, it, it's a whole new in industry. It's, it's, I think income share agreements sort of came first, but now there's like shared earnings agreements for companies as well. That's like, like earnest capital is a really innovative investment firm. That's like, okay, there's a lot of internet businesses. We're happy to give you capital, but we don't need equity. We just need, we're going to give you an amount of money and you're going to pay us back probably two or two to five times what we loaned you. And so it's kind of like in a, a kind of like a, yeah, shared earnings agreement. And so, yeah, that, that's why I think it's hard to compare them to venture capital because it is a capped upside and not equity on your, you know, future until you're dead. Right, right. I think, I think the, that's a really good point. I didn't even think about that. I, I guess the, the similarity I saw was just the removing of the risk for the downside, mm -hmm. right? Where it's like, hey, you know, if you don't land a job, right, then we didn't deliver, right? And so you shouldn't have to pay us back which is just, if you actually think about what doors that opens up for somebody, it's, it's actually astounding. And I think that's one of the reasons why 
programs like Lambda School and Microverse have been able to get off the ground without the credentialing system. I mean, this is what people are paying for when they're going to universities. They know they have this credential that employers, they, they know what it's worth. But with like boot camps, it's, it's unclear. And so I feel like the way that these boot camps were really able to take off was the ISA. It allowed them to say like, hey, if we don't actually deliver, then you don't pay us a cent. Yeah, and you know, like it's, uh, I think this is best, it was really well explained the other day, but I think you had him on the podcast and I might pronounce his name wrong. It's not, is it Edward, I believe? Edward Harris. I, I think I, you know, Sharpest I'm going Mines? to- Sorry? Yes, exactly. Sharp, yes, yeah. Yes. yeah, Edward, we did have him. He was actually on a very recent episode. So he, you know, he tweeted recently something about like, imagine telling someone about student loans for education if it existed after income share agreements. It's like, oh yeah, you know, you, you borrow a bunch of money and you pay up front and, you know, it's like completely separated than like what the, the service like is actually providing value. Like the pricing and the value are not correlated. And if that would come after an income share agreement, it's like, why, why the hell does someone create that? <laughs> that's, a, that's horrific, you know? So That's a um, really good point. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> And so, you know, I think right now, and what that also empowers is that you're seeing this fundamental shift in network effects in education, where for too long, we've relied on this concept of, like the true network effect concept is come, come for the tool, stay for the network. But for too long, we've relied on come for the network, and maybe it'll serve some tool or utility later on, and maybe we can, you know, you'll meet someone you can get a job with, and then you'll learn on that job probably. And so right now, these, these kind of this new wave of our online education companies say, no, like, let's provide that tool first. Let's actually get you the skills to get the job and stay around for this network of other people in this alumni base who are also really, you know, valuable and willing to help uh, out, you know, a fellow uh, alumni. So I think that that's like a fundamental shift that we're going to see. It just, like, I don't think people realize how big of a shift education is going to be in this decade. Yeah, no, totally. And real quick, I want to talk about, I guess, who are, I guess, who's using ISAs today and who could be using it, but isn't. And I think this really fundamentally kind of goes in line with uh, your company and what you guys are working on. Yeah. So, you know, the first wave of ISA or like the first folks to use an ISA were traditional universities. And I think like Purdue University in my home state of Indiana they were like, you know what, let's test out this price, let's test out this, this tuition model, but only for kind of the least risky folks and only if there's no other financial options. And then, you know, Lambda School really popularized it, uh, but there have been a couple other, you know, tech boot camps that have, have had that for longer. Now, right now, the majority of the companies that are using it are these, you know, kind of digital trade schools or, or boot, coding boot camps, sales boot camps, but I think that's that's sort of a narrow that like that's a narrow view of who is going to be using them in the future. So um, the concept of what I think like a school is is really going to change as well in the next decade. So like right now, a school is like okay, someone goes up there, like teaches you the content, you do group work, you maybe apply it, whatever, and uh, you learn a skill to get a job. You start, I think, with with COVID especially, you've started to see the rise of a lot of these learning communities. And so someone that's really experienced in a particular skill now gets other people that want to learn that they help, help each other. They mentor each other. And, you know, the end goal is for everyone to like increase their income earning potential really through some skill right now, the pricing mechanism 
that most of these online communities or career accelerators use is either a membership fee, an equity fee, so like a venture capital kind of approach like a, like a Y Combinator, or like it, it's free. And none of those pricing mechanisms properly aligns with that value that those communities, career accelerators, or next generation of schools actually provide. And so I think who, who's going to use a lot of income, income share agreements are one, people that just want to help and mentor and educate others. And right now they're maybe charging for content, charging for a community, or just doing it for free. And then two, it's like someone that's like, holy cow, like I'm going to create the next generation social network, but it's not going to be a social network that tries to, you know, optimize on capturing all of your attention, but rather this social network is going to optimize on your learning, your progress, and your ability to get to a, you know, a a life-changing job. And right now there's not a great, like without an income share agreement, there's not a great way to optimize on that. Um, Again, it's like, do you optimize for people that can pay for memberships? Do you optimize, like there's kind of uncertainty. So I think once you can put an income share agreement in these sort of next generation social networks that focus on progress and growth, those are going to be, I think, the primary um, use cases for income, or like one of the primary. Yeah, totally. And, and the way I've been thinking about it is actually income share agreements might actually be the reason that we create kind of a return to the apprenticeship model. And, and the reason I say that is because one of the big problems with universities is that a lot of people will go through these four-year programs and they're learning from people who haven't been in industry or if they have been in industry, it's been so long ago that a lot of those skills aren't even relevant anymore. And so more and more people, it seems, and this is, I feel like a big reason why boot camps are rising, is they want to learn from people who are actually in industry and can teach you relevant skills. And they themselves aren't just academics and researchers. They're people who are practicing this on a day-to-day basis. And income share agreements basically create this kind of way for these industry experts to share their knowledge with a handful of individuals. And then they have the incentives to basically train them and know that they'll get paid back for all that work if they're actually able to deliver on their promise. Totally. Yeah, I I think a lot of people look at income share agreements as like an alternative to a student loan, but really they're just a whole nother transaction layer. It's a new class Um, of repayment and financing. And it's not just a class, it's a whole layer that you can build upon it with like of different incentives. So for example, with your, like the apprenticeship models, like, let's say you, like, I think you're going to see, and you're starting to see with these learning communities, the rise of these digital guilds or these digital, like, yeah, apprenticeship guilds. And so let's say you help someone get a job as a software developer and you help them go to, you know, zero to one, you know, maybe they're paying back their income share agreement. Now with an income share agreement, you can actually say, okay, Hey, can you actually come back for part of your time? Let's say two hours a week and mentor students that are a year and a half behind you in exchange for a discount on your income share agreement or rather a credit to what you have to pay. And so what you can start to do is just align the interests of learners at every level of experience in a particular vertical. And so that's what I think is going to be, is really interesting with like the, the, it's not just like the the return of apprenticeships. It's like the return of guilds at a huge, huge, huge level. Or like a, yeah, something like a, at a size that looks like Facebook or, or Twitter. Like I, I do believe, like the next generation of social networks are, are are going to be, you know, look more like these learning communities and guilds than a Facebook or a Twitter or a TikTok. 
Yeah, totally. And it, it definitely kind of uh, ties in with virtually and what, a lot of what we're building is kind of the other side of it, where you're kind of handling the ISAs and the repayment side of things. And we're kind of doing all the content delivery. And we're like you said, it's like, it's really hard to get these programs off the ground. And we're really kind of tackling it from the content delivery standpoint, where it's like, hey, like you shouldn't need, you don't need to be a venture backed startup to start one of these programs yeah. and learning communities. You know, you right. should, anybody should be able to do it. And so we're kind of building the software and the infrastructure to be able to do that. Anyway, Wes, we are running out of time. And so I kind of want to leave on one last question for you, which is what do you think COVID-19 is, is what is going to be effect on the future of higher education and ISAs specifically uh, due to everything that's happened with the economy in the last few months? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just accelerated these trends that we're already seeing. So like one trend, for example, is that the half-life of a relevant skill is rapidly decreasing. So maybe, you know, back in the day, you could go to learn a skill and it would survive for 15 years in the market. Well, now if you learn a skill, sorry, that's going to last like a couple of years. You know, if you learn Facebook advertising, like those Facebook advertising skills might only last, you know, a couple months before they've changed their platform. So you're starting to see the shift to people. People are having to like go back to education more and more and learn along. Like meanwhile, they actually do their work. So I think COVID has showed us that, you know, it, there, there's been massive layoffs and now people are realizing, oh crap, like I actually don't have the skills to get a job right now because what I knew was relevant five, 10 years ago. So that's one thing that's accelerated. Another is that people are realizing, oh, um, like they're realizing that what they paid for in like a traditional higher education degree was not necessarily the ability to get a job, but rather they were paying for like the campus experience, quote, unquote. They paid for the accountability support community of a group of peers that are going through a similar stage in life. And what's going to be really difficult for these universities is to be like, uh, especially the universities are still sort of, you know, going to be virtual before for, for a longer period of time they're going to have to go from, no, 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 our, our content is the most valuable thing. That's why you need to pay us a lot of money. And that's why you need to like watch your online lectures to when COVID like sort of, I guess, ramps down and people can go back to campus, then they'll have to switch back to saying, oh, no, 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 you should pay us because of this campus experience and the, you know, the community, the resources, the network. And so I think that, that whole value of like the most valuable thing is that accountability support and community network that is accelerating. I, I'm not, not saying that like content isn't like content. will all you'll always have to have content to learn, but people are realizing that you can't just sell content and be an educator. Well, you know, maybe you can specialize that and people can people, I mean, I know people that are the best in the world at a particular topic and they can release content and sell content and they can get a lot of money but you have to combine that with those other components. Yeah, totally. I recently talked to somebody who kind of broke down college into three things, which is it's the credentials, it's the experience, and it's the education, right? And it just feels like that's getting unbundled right now. And you, you really can't get the experience uh, while we're in lockdown. And so you're left with the other two, which people are really questioning, is it like, is that worth $50,000 a year? Uh, and for most people, it might actually end up being no. And so it'll be really interesting to see what happens when a lot of these universities go out of business and what those, fa what those faculty members do. I mean, they might be the people who really spawn this movement towards these apprenticeship and online learning programs because they themselves have a brand around, around their internet presence. 
Uh, but anyway, Wes, this was this was a really fun conversation. Uh, do you have any last minute plugs you want to give uh, to the audience in terms of to learn more about Align as well as keep up with yourself? Yeah. So if you want to learn more about Align and if you want to start uh, and scale income share agreements yourself, you can go to you know, www.withalign.com. And then I myself am on Twitter at caffeinated West. That's C-A-F-F-E-I-N-A-T-E-D West. And personal website is just westonwagner.com, W-E-S-T-O-N, wagner.com. So yeah, my only plugs are, are that like, if you'd love to share your skill, like if, if you're passionate about education and, and starting a business in the space, you know, reach out and see if I can be of help. Awesome. Thanks so much, Wes. And that was Wes Wagner of Align. If you're interested in learning more about ISAs and what Align is up to, go on over to withalign.com. If you're interested in checking out what we're up to at Virtually, you can go on over to tryvirtually.com. With that, this is Ish, signing off.